Well, this evening we look, as I said, to the truth of God's Word that is summarized in Lord's Day 26 and its three questions. You can find that on pages 33 and 34 in your Psalter hymnal. But first I'd like to read with you from 2 Kings chapter 5, and I think we're going to go just a bit farther than I uh, had in the bulletin for a scripture reading. We're going to go from verse 1 through verse 19 so that we can see a bit more of the context here. This is uh, a story about the ministry of Elisha, successor of the prophet Elijah, uh, who ministered in the northern kingdom. Now you'll recall that at this time after, really after the reign of David and then Solomon, in the midst of Solomon's son Rehoboam's reign, the kingdom of Israel split. So you had Judah in the south, you had the ten tribes in the north. Elisha ministers in the north to the kings of those northern ten tribes. And north of them were the kingdoms of Syria and Assyria, which were both usually in warfare against uh, the people of Israel. At this time that he's writing, they were at peace, but it was a tense peace, and there was no guarantee of that continuing. Keep that in mind as the background here. Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, with, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and heal the leprosy. Are not Abana and, Par and Farfar... The rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 
And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please, let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now in summary of God's word, our catechism brings us three questions. You'll recall last time we uh, considered in Lord's Day 25 the means of grace. How God imparts to us the faith that unites us to Christ and strengthens that faith through the preaching of the word. But how he also gives the sacraments to appeal to our other senses so as to strengthen and grant assurance to our faith. Well, now we're going to look at those sacraments. In, verse, or in Lord's Days 26 and 27, we look at baptism. And thereafter, we look at the Lord's Supper. So first, he asks, the, the catechism asks, how does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? And the answer is in this way. Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it, he gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, in other words, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God by grace has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood poured out for me in his sacrifice on the cross. And to be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ, so that more and more I become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with His blood and Spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And this promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Amen. Brothers and sisters beloved through our Lord Jesus Christ, every so often we witness something as a church which should raise questions in our minds. And that's something that we witness is baptism. Nearly everyone in this room has been baptized, either as a child or as an adult. We believe that these baptisms are not merely empty traditions, but are sacraments which God has commanded of us and which He intends to use for our good. There's a reason that we are baptized. And so the question is, what is that reason? What's God's purpose here? On the one hand, that's 
an easy thing to answer. You're a member of the covenant. Those who belong to the covenant, those who belong to that relationship that God has established with his people, they should receive the sign and seal of the covenant, which, according to Christ, is baptism. But, it's not just a random mark of the covenant. It's not just that God said, well, you know, we need something, this should work. There's a reason, there's a significance to this particular sacrament that causes him to give it to us, that, that he intends to use for our good. So what is the message, therefore? What is the message of this mark of the covenant? The Bible presents sacraments as signs and seals. Signs teach us something important. Seals grant us assurance concerning that teaching. Such reminders and assurances presume the existence of that which they teach, that which they assure us of. So what is that underlying truth? What is that promise that is signified and sealed to us by this sacrament of baptism? What is the message that God had for you when you were baptized or for your children when they were brought forth and baptized? Well, our forefathers help us to answer that question with the the questions and answers they gave us in this Lord's Day, which together show us that our Lord assures us of saving grace by this sacrament of baptism. Our Lord assures us of saving grace by this sacrament of baptism. That's our theme. And we see that the sacrament testifies to this saving grace in testifying to three pairs of truths. First to the truth of a twofold redemption, then to the truth of a twofold restoration, and then finally to the truth of a twofold result. The first question of our Lord's Day teaches us about our assurance in a twofold redemption. It reveals that assurance in the form of a comparison. Just as this, so also that. Just as we receive this outward act, this is the comparison, so Christ gives this inward act. Just as a bath cleanses my body. Kids, listen to this. Think about it. Saturday night, you're getting ready for, church, or for, for bed. Mom and Dad, make sure you got your, your Sunday school lesson done, your memory work's taken care of. She says, now it's time for a bath. Why? Because you've been playing all day. You got filthy. Tomorrow you're going to wear your nice, your nice dress clothes. You're going to go to church. You need to be clean. So you go take a bath because that's what a bath does. It cleans your body. And in the same way, the sacrament shows us that Christ's blood and spirit cleanse our soul. The main analogy of that sacrament of baptism is a bath. Think about what most of the, the baptisms in the New Testament look like. New disciples of John the Baptist are convicted by his preaching. They repent of their sin, and so what does he do? He brings them down to the river, and he dips them into the river as a baptism. New converts to Christ, again, are taken to a river or to a, a stream or to a, a pond, and they are dipped into the water. You see, that's how adults in that time and place often bathed. In a pool of water, they would immerse themselves. But as the generations continue, more and more people who have accepted Christ, have been baptized into Christ, they have children. And so the practices almost immediately begin of of sprinkling, of pouring 
Why? Because that's how you bathe the child. You don't dunk them underwater so much as you dump the water on them, right? So the first thing this sacrament shows us, brothers and sisters, as we saw this morning to some degree, is that we're dirty. Something about us is impure, and it needs to be cleansed. And so our Lord, by means of this sacrament, he assures us of that cleansing. Not cleansing by the water. That's just a sign. That's an object lesson. Kids, never forget, when we see a baptism, that water, it'll cleanse the body. But it's not actually accomplishing the cleansing of the soul that baptism points to. It's simply a symbol. Showing us that there's something that works like water. The way water works on our body, there's something that works that way on our soul. So baptism tells us that we're dirty, but then it it points us to the cleansing that's greater than that of water. That's what confused Naaman in the passage that we just read. He confused the sign, the water, with the thing that it signified, a deeper cleansing. You see... This account about Elisha and Naaman was given in part to preach ahead of time about what Christ would come to do. It's a living sermon about Christ, and it speaks very powerfully to baptism and all that baptism teaches. Review just a minute. Who was this Naaman? He's a commander of the army of Syria. This was an enemy nation that was, at the time, quite powerful. They were at peace at that moment. There was a treaty between Israel and Syria. But as evidenced by the fact that this Naaman had an Israelite girl who had been stolen from her home as a servant in his house, it was a pretty tense and frail peace, right? Well, Naaman, he's respected and loved by all, especially by his master, the king of Syria, but he has a problem, he's a leper. Now, in Israel, that would have ruled him entirely out of bounds. He couldn't have ruled the ar- or led the army because he would have been cast out of the city, Right? Syria clearly is not as strict about their ceremonial purity, but still there's a recognition he's unclean. There's a recognition there's something defiled about him. And it causes him great grief. But then he hears from this slave girl who's an Israelite. She tells the man's wife, you know, if he was down in Samaria, the prophet would just heal him of his leprosy. What beautiful faith from the the mouth of a child. And he hears this, and he goes, and he tells his master, he tells the king. And the king says, you go down there, we'll have it happen. We'll get it, we'll get it taken care of. They're afraid of us, don't worry, we'll take, the, take care of this. But the king of Israel is not amused. Do you hear his confession? Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? He thought it was a trick. The guy's trying to get me to, get me to, to offend him so that he can declare war on us. Because he recognized what all Israel recognized, that there is no cure for leprosy and that there's no way that I can heal him. Clearly the note was not specific. Hey, there's some prophet down there that can fix this. He just said, the man who bears this note, heal him of his leprosy. And the king is distraught. He doesn't see any way to do what the note commands, but neither does he see a way of not being offensive in saying so. But Elisha hears. Elisha's got friends at the palace. 
So he sends for Naaman. He says, send this commander of the army to me and I'll take care of him. Naaman comes. But Naaman doesn't get what he expects. Naaman, well, he's, he's accustomed to the deference that comes from being the head of the army. From being a well-respected general of a fierce armed force. He expects that the prophet will come out and be deferential to him and show him honor and call upon the Lord and, and with great show and pomp and circumstance heal him. But no, instead the prophet refuses even to meet with him, simply sends a messenger out to say, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean. The man is angry. He's in a rage. Why? Because he's offended by, for one thing. And for another, because he, seems, he sees the command as ridiculous. Everyone knows you don't just wash leprosy off. It doesn't matter what river, what ocean, what stream you use. You don't just wash it off. It's a disease. It's, it's in your skin. What kind of a fool did this prophet think I am? He sees it as a wasted trip, and so he's enraged. But understand what Elisha was doing, brothers and sisters. By refusing to come out to him, Elisha, who is the servant of God, who is the representative of God before Naaman, he demonstrates the significance of his defilement, not just of leprosy, but of sin. He says, you are unworthy to meet with God or the one who represents him. Your defilement has separated you from the true God. That's the root of your misery. It's not just that you have itchy skin that makes you look funny. Your real misery is that you are separated from God, who alone can give you blessing. Now, Elisha never said that the water would cure him. He simply said, go to the Jordan River, dip yourself seven times, and you will be cleansed. It's passive. Not something that Naaman would accomplish, but something that would be accomplished upon him, in him. In the same way that he was to wash his body in the river, so too God would wash away his defilement. Just as surely as that river was able to relatively cleanse his body, so God was able to fully cleanse not just, not just the disease, but the sin and the defilement within. This is a sacramental act. A sign intended to teach Naaman. A seal intended to give him assurance that God is the one who is able to heal us and restore us and remove all our misery. And when Naaman, at the urging of his servants, obeys the prophet, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. God was faithful to the promise he spoke through his prophet. He redeemed Naaman not just from the defilement of the flesh, but from his inner defilement. You see, that, in essence, is the twofold redemption of baptism. It's a redemption that, on the one hand, is accomplished by someone else, but then is appropriated by us through faith. We all need to be cleansed, every one of us. Our sins leave us filthy and unworthy to enter the presence of God. Nothing that we do is able to cleanse us. Only what Christ has done is able to restore us to God. Consider the counsel of Titus chapter 3. Paul reminds us there that we all, every one of us, 
were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what comes natural. Somebody recently said to me, I don't know what to do with this kid of mine. They're so selfish. I said, that makes them a person. Because that's what we all are at the very start. We're selfish. We're hateful. We're liars. We're cheaters. We're thieves. We're filled with the lusts of the flesh that would destroy us and that always make us unacceptable to God. That's our misery. And nothing we can do can change us. But what Christ has done is entirely able to cleanse us. Not not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. By His mercy, by His work, by His power, we are cleansed. That's the redemption we need, brothers and sisters. That's the cleansing that is required. And it was already accomplished for us 2,000 years ago by Jesus. But that redemption accomplished 2,000 years ago can only help you, can only cleanse you through faith. You need to understand what He has done for you and you need to trust Him that He is the sufficient one, that He has done everything necessary. It's only by faith that Christ's redemption is applied to us. So God gives us tools that we call the means of faith, the preaching of the word, by which he imparts faith to us and strengthens that faith, the sacraments by which he helps us to better understand that faith, teaching us, and gives it something concrete so that we can be strengthened in our faith. Those signs and seals that we call sacraments, God gives that to strengthen the faith that unites us to Christ. So our calling... Having received that sacrament, our calling is to trust in the redemption that in baptism we've seen. As you watch a newborn child or a new convert being baptized, let that remind you, that happened to me. And those promises that he just spoke over that person, those promises were spoken to me. That cleansing that I see happening to the skin, to the body of that person, that's what he promised to do to my soul. And I need to believe it. I need to be confident in it. I need to have no doubt that he's able to do precisely what he has promised to do. We must be strengthened in our faith by this sacrament that testifies to the twofold redemption, that which Christ accomplished, that which we appropriate. But then also we're reminded baptism points to a twofold restoration. See, redemption is the fact of the cleansing. It's the washing of our soul. It's the removal of sin's defilement. But then the question becomes, what does it accomplish? What does it do? And Lord's Day 26 offers a twofold answer to that. First it says, to be washed with Christ's blood means that God by grace has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood poured out for me in his sacrifice on the cross. Redemption in Christ means, first of all, that my sins are forgiven. In theological language, we call that justification. Justification is the forgiveness that restores God's people to righteousness in the sight of God. Without justification, no one can enter God's presence because they're guilty. They deserve His wrath. And until that wrath is satisfied, until His punishment has been poured out, they, 
they can only come before him to be condemned. Justification is the first result we see from Naaman's journey to the Jordan River. In verse 14, we see how he did what Elijah told him. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. And then we read that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. By removing Naaman's leprosy, the Lord was demonstrating the removal of defilement. Because Naaman submitted to the prophet's instruction by faith, albeit a baby faith, a tiny little faith, a faith almost grudgingly accepted, but he believed. Demonstrated by the fact that he dipped himself in the river and God removed his defilement. That's what the leprosy, we saw that this morning, that's what the leprosy signified. It signified the inner defilement. And so he was restored. And notice what happens. He comes back to see the prophet and the prophet comes to see him. Elisha, who wouldn't come out to see him so that he could see his misery, so that he could recognize that God was separated from him because of his sin, now that he has been cleansed, now Elisha comes out. Now Elisha demonstrates you've been restored to God. Justification. Brothers and sisters, Naaman was a picture of us. When he first tried to draw near to the Lord, he was defiled by leprosy, and so the Lord would not meet with him. That's us at the start. If we try to do, surely Naaman had tried every folk remedy available. He tried all the creams. He tried all of the, the bandages. He probably, living in Syria, a pagan country, tried all kinds of incantations and none of it worked. It doesn't matter what you seek to accomplish on your own. What you seek to do to get rid of the defilement of your sin, it won't work. Not all of your good works, not all of your patience, not all of your striving, none of it will accomplish anything in the sight of God. It's only as we submit to His commands by faith. It's only as we trust in the Lord Jesus that we're cleansed. That's what baptism signifies, but baptism doesn't do it. Baptism just shows us the promise. It demonstrates what Jesus promises to do. That's why... As Jesus was preparing to ascend back to heaven. And he gave his disciples that calling to disciple the nations. The first way he said to do that is by baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Justification is absolutely essential for anyone who would be a disciple of the Lord. They must come to faith in Jesus. That's the absolute indispensable element of being a disciple. But it's not the end. Because having said that, that we're to make disciples by baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he says, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Having been restored from their sin, they must be restored to holiness. Having been restored from defilement, they have to enter into holiness. We saw that this morning, right? There were two aspects, first the cleansing and then the consecration. First the removal of the, the defilement and now the entering into holiness. And that's the second, the second aspect here. To be washed with Christ's spirit 
means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that more and more I become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. That's sanctification. Having been justified, the defilement having been removed, now we are in the process of being sanctified, of being made holy. And again, we see this in Naaman also. Having been cleansed from his defilement. What's the first thing that Naaman does? He, restore, he, he returns to the man who speaks for God and he confesses, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. That's a pretty significant confession coming from the general of a pagan nation. To claim that the God of Israel is the only true God. But he goes farther than that. He vows to worship the Lord in Syria. He's going to go to all the trouble of taking some dirt from Israel back. So that he can have a place to worship. Now we can find all kinds of qualms and faults about how he begins to worship the Lord and, and the qualifications. But that's not the point. The point is, this man who knew very, very, very little about the true God. He wants to worship Him. And not only that, but he seeks his forgiveness for the fact that his duties will lead him into the temple of a foreign God and he makes the confession that I won't worship that God even though I have to go in his temple. Do you see the life in those statements? Do you see the newfound commitment to the Lord? Naaman has been cleansed by God because he had the faith of a mustard seed. Elisha said, be baptized and God will cleanse you. So Naaman was baptized and he was in fact cleansed. And then he returns and he is completely changed. No longer does rage take hold of him. He's been freed. No longer is he motivated and moved by the, the passions of the flesh. But now, by the commitment of a trusting heart. In a similar way, our baptism shows us our restoration to God. In Romans 6, the Lord speaks of baptism according to the reality of what it teaches us and assures us. Paul asks there, have you been baptized? Then you have been joined to Christ. You've been united to Him in His death, justified by His saving sacrifice on the cross. But you've also been united to His resurrected life, which means His power over sin is in you. His commitment to God is coursing through your spiritual veins. To be baptized into Christ, in other words, to receive it truly, is not only to be justified, but also to be in the process of sanctification. That means, brothers and sisters, we must not regard baptism as having merely a one-time effect. That's the, the error, one of the errors, against which the catechism was being written. They had the idea throughout the Middle Ages that when you were baptized, that cleansed you, that act cleansed you from your original sin and all the sins you've committed thenceforth. But from that point on, now, now it's a cooperative effort between me and God. Now I have to do something to help get rid of the sin. And they pointed out, no, that regards baptism as a one-time thing. The justification we receive that is signified by baptism, that is once for always. It always affects us. And so too the sanctification. Having been baptized, having trusted in Christ, now we live for Christ. Now we live a life of holiness. We live out our baptism. That's your calling. And I beg of you, hear it well. Because the sacrament of baptism always and invariably brings a result. 
That's what we learn from the final point of our lesson this evening. Baptism testifies to a twofold result. But in this case, each person receives only one of the results. The twofold result is, is hinted at in our Lord's Day's questions themselves. In the first question, we read, How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? And then we look at the last question, and it says, Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his, body, his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? Think on that. For you personally, as surely as we are washed. There's a certainty there and a personality there. This baptism says this is what is true of you. Naaman, he heard words that were just as certain from Elisha. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you. And you shall be clean. Those are not statements filled with careful qualifications. Elisha doesn't say, go and do that, and if you're really one of God's elect, then he will sovereignly do this. He never says, you know, assuming you persist to the very end, then God will receive you. No, he doesn't say that. The preaching of the word, sometimes we have to, be, uh, we have to offer all the qualifications, show all the nuances, but the sacraments don't do that. The sacraments are very, very blunt. This is what shall happen to you. This is what is true of you. Now hearing that, Naaman had a decision to make. Would he accept that claim as true? If he did, he would go and wash in the Jordan River, trusting that God would do what he had promised. But if he didn't believe it, if he thought it was a bunch of hooey, well then he wouldn't do what was commanded. And he wouldn't receive what was promised. But he had to make a choice. Will I believe and obey? The response of faith. Or will I disbelieve and depart? The response of unbelief. The response of defilement. That was Naaman's choice. And that's our choice. Our catechism quotes from Mark 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's what he commands of us. Not just baptism. On its own, baptism will do nothing for you. It must be received in faith. God says in baptism, this is what I do to your soul. This is the benefit that Christ gives to you. Not just once in justification, but ongoing through sanctification. And we need to receive it by faith. We need to accept it by faith. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But, on the other hand, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Notice what dropped out. The baptism. Because if you don't believe, if you don't have faith, it doesn't matter whether you were baptized, you will be condemned. So you see, those are the two possible results of baptism. Either we receive what was promised by faith, and we are saved. We are justified in God's sight and by the Spirit our lives take on a sanctification. Or we disbelieve. We reject the truth. We reject God's promises. And for us there will be no cleansing. There will be no hope. Brothers and sisters, you must believe. 
You have been baptized into the promises of Christ's gracious covenant. You have seen baptism countless times over, reminding you of what was done to you and what its significance is. Now you must believe the facts that it taught you. You must trust the Savior to whom it points, and you must live in blessed communion with God the Father by whom you have been restored. Only by faith. That's what the Lord commands. Faith in Jesus His Son and the Father who sent Him. That, brothers and sisters, is why you were baptized. To strengthen you in the faith by which we are saved. Now may the Lord create and sustain within us that faith that no one else can give. And may He continue to wash, to cleanse, to purify the lives of those who have received their baptism in faith. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, what an amazing promise you have given to us in baptism. That not only are we cleansed of our defilement like Naaman of old, but that now you will be at work within us to continue cleansing our lives and making them new. Father, we pray that you would establish us in the faith that receives and delights in this beautiful promise. And Father, we pray that you would use us to honor and glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen.